Welcome to The Bag Drop, Untold Stories in Golf. I'm your host and co-founder of New Club Golf Society, Matt Considine. Today, we have with us Phil Aroca, founding honor member of the Golf Society, recently turned into New Club's first ever employee. Yes, Phil is our Chicago chapter's first territory manager and official society diplomat. After growing up on the North Shore of Chicago, attending the straight out of a John Hughes movie, New Trier High School, Phil pursued his dream of playing D1 collegiate golf, finally settling at St. Joseph's in Philadelphia, where he excelled on the short grass before graduating and taking his talents to the professional ranks, traveling and grinding it out on the mini tours. Maybe his most notable achievement was winning the 2011 Illinois Open, a c- accomplishment he is too humble to share himself, but a trophy I demand he share with new club in our HQ someday. This one hits close to home as Phil has become a trusted friend and fearless crusader for our golf society at New Club. Whether you're a competitor looking for an edge or a leisurely mom or dad looking to squeeze in more golf and enjoy yourself more often, Phil offers up plenty of personal insights and motivation to sink into on this one. Speaking of sinking, if you want to see the future stars of the PGA Tour sink some putts, well, then I have good news because the Corn Ferry Tour will be rolling through Chicago this weekend from May 26th through the 30th for the Evans Scholars Invitational at the Glen Club. General admission to this event is complimentary, but fans looking for something a little extra can purchase tickets to the hangar, a premium spectator venue with food and drink included. For more information, visit esinvitational.com. Last week's guest of the show, Nick Hardy, he'll be there. And uh, I got a good feeling about his chances. Maybe a little the bag drop bump coming his way. All proceeds from the event will support Evan Scholars and the foundation's mission of providing full tuition and housing scholarships to deserving youth caddies. Now, without further ado, on to the show. Philip Aroca, welcome to the bag drop. It's a pleasure, Matt. Always good to chat with you and uh, especially excited today to, to dive more into uh, our shared love for the game of golf. Me too. Uh, you know, my wife calls you Aruka. I don't know. <laughs> and she says, oh, who are you talking to? I say, Phil Aroca. She says, Aruka. Yeah, that's not uncommon. Um, you know, my uh, uh, kind of quick backstory on on my name, it's uh, Portuguese. And um, I, you know, kind of a fun story was uh, my wife and I took our honeymoon over to Portugal. And I have it on good authority that it is pronounced Aroca um, as we asked a local taxi cab driver. So, you know, I like to think that they're pretty involved in the culture. And so I'm going to go with the local taxi cab driver on this one. Yeah, they're, they're known linguists in the taxi cab community, uh, Portuguese, I would not have pinned you for Portuguese. Yeah. So, uh, my, uh, my dad's family is hundred percent Portuguese. My, my grandfather, who's no longer with us, uh, uh, was born in Portugal, uh, immigrated here in, uh, I think when he was about, uh, nine or 10 years old. And, um, my grandmother, uh, was was born and raised here in the states outside boston but her family had immigrated from portugal as well so um 
Yeah, I you know the uh, the other fun story about my last name Aroca is there's actually a town in Portugal called Aroca. Haven't visited there, but would love to uh, to go there one day certainly. Wow, wow! The more you know, man. I mean, you're you're already working for a new club, and I didn't even know your your origin of your name. So I'm glad we're we're having you back on the podcast. We have very few guests who have survived for a second visit. Uh, I believe it's just you and the professor at this point. There might be one more I'm not thinking of. Dr. Joe Parent, he was definitely a, a multi-guest. But, um, you know, we, we're having you back on because I just, I love chatting with you. Every time we talk, I, I feel inspired about golf, inspired about life. And I wanted to share that a little bit with the, uh, the membership and the listening audience. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure. I, you know, I, again, I, like I said, I love, uh, love chatting with you about golf. I'm super excited to be part of a uh, new club. And, um, you know, I think this is, uh, uh, this, the, the society that you guys have built so far has, has just been, um, such a wonderful addition to the golfing community, you know, Chicago and Atlanta, but, you know, continue to grow it around the country. And, um, we'll certainly talk more about that moving forward, but yeah, happy to be back on, uh, on the backdrop today. Uh, last time you were on, we talked a lot about the game of curling. So, uh, we're, we're kind of talking here at the beginning of summer. Um, no curling. How, how's your curling game? I'll start there. Curling for me is non-existent at the moment. We decided to, uh, my wife and I who curl a lot together, we decided to take, the season off, uh, with, uh, with, with COVID-19 pandemic, but yeah, I actually, the last couple of weeks have had a chance to, uh, to watch a, um, the, uh, uh, women's world cup of curling and, um, man, I just can't get enough of it. Uh, so I'm excited to be back to it in October, uh, this year and, um, certainly missed out on it this winter. And if anyone in Chicago is listening or anyone anywhere is listening, you can uh, go back to that episode and listen to me ask really dumb questions about um, what appears to be a simple game. But I, I quickly learned from our friend Phil here that it's not. It is uh, ripe with strategy and all kinds of different skill it requires to, to uh, man, I was going to say throw the stone. Is that right? Is that the term? You throw the stone? Yeah, you throw throw the stone, the rock, um, you know, sometimes as it's called. But uh, yeah, it's all about strategy, uh, angles. Uh, so there's definitely a lot of similarities to uh, to golf. And we will leave it at that other episode. Go check that one out if you're if you're here if you're at if you come to the backdrop for curling, that's your episode. Uh, if you're here for golf, we're talking to Phil. So Phil, I want to start with kind of your arc as a golfer. Um, there's some things I find fascinating about it. Let's go right back to the, the origin, right? When did you first pick up a club? Oh man. Uh, you know, probably age seven or eight. Um, my dad's been a golfer for a really, really long time ever since he was about 10, 11, 12 years old. Um, you know, he picked up the game and, um, uh, uh, you know, his father worked in a steel foundry his entire life. And, um, 
Uh, my dad actually told me this fun story the other day that uh, sometimes he was actually driven to the golf course uh, from uh, a member of their local parish because my grandmother uh, didn't have a car. The, my, my grandfather had to take the car to to uh to to work and so my dad had to find ways to get to the golf course so the local uh local parish uh, had a volunteer drive him um when it comes to me i picked it up around the same time kind of seven eight nine years old uh my dad gave me a five iron and i think i hit that five iron a few thousand times before you know i got uh got my own uh set of clubs but uh, I was a baseball player growing up and so didn't really have a lot of interest in golf. And then um, my baseball career abruptly ended junior year of high school, uh, but it was a blessing in disguise. And, you know, I had a big, you know, a big over the top cut slice swing, if you will. Um, you know, my best round was like 84, 85. And, um, I took a couple of lessons and got, you know, the swing arc coming from the inside and started hitting a draw. And I always love this story because um, this is just where I got absolutely hooked. We went on a family vacation one year uh, down to the uh, West coast of Florida. I played three rounds of golf with my dad. And I think I shot like, I didn't, I don't think I broke a hundred. And I was hitting snap hooks. I was hitting blocks, um, just couldn't figure it out. But I would hit those few really great shots. That was like a nice tight five yard draw and just something hooked with me. And, um, you know, just kept playing more, playing more, getting better. And I was a pitcher in baseball. And so, you know, having all of the um, uh, pressure on you to perform, really has always been kind of with me. And so I like the fact that in golf, all the pressure is on you. You've got nobody else to blame. Um, and, you know, if you hit a great shot, it's because of you. If you hit a bad shot, it's also because of you. Uh, and so it's just, uh, it just stuck with me and continued on into college and professional golf. So a little bit of your competitive life um, in golf was that junior year when you picked up golf? Was that when you joined the golf team? No, um, I tried out for the Nutria golf team. So everybody in Chicago probably knows Nutria High School, super competitive golf team. And um, I picked up like playing a lot more junior year um, towards the end of junior year and then tried out just for my, my senior year. And um you know, I didn't play very much my senior year. Uh, I think we had, you know, 22 people. I was like number 19. So it wasn't like I was going to get a lot of starts. And um, our our top six, uh, you know, we had one guy end up going to Purdue. Another one went to Michigan State, Tulane, Cornell. I mean, we had a lot of really good players. So it was hard to cr crack that, that top five or six uh, people. I, I refer to you as a natural talent um, because you and I are the same age or roughly the same age. We actually played college golf. Uh, both were division one collegiate golfers and we were at a lot of the same tournaments, but we never, never freaking met. Had no idea. Had no idea. You know? So, and we look back, we, what we need to do is go back and look at those leaderboards. I'll, I'll bet you a beer. You, you got me by, you know, no backside. No, I, I guarantee you, you were, you were definitely beating me every no, single week. You, you, 
Well, okay. Our mediocre collegiate careers aside, I just found it so fascinating. And I thought it was your junior year, but it was your senior year that you were uh, a part of the, the team. And then you get to be a division one collegiate golfer. My, ex my experience, not just mine, but everyone else that I knew that, you know, said, Hey, I want to play collegiate golf and I want to play it at the, the highest level. Um, that was a decision we made when we were freshmen, when we were sophomores. Uh, and usually we we're telling ourselves that we wanted to be professional golfers, but we were, we were doing that. And then we were, you know, trying to get into those national tournaments to prove that we had what it takes to be on those teams um, so that a coach would actually look at us, you know, each, each coach gets five players and he only has two to three scholarships. So it wasn't like, you know, they're knocking on your door for shooting 75 at a local muni tournament. Um, how did you get, you went to St. Joe's and, and played. So how did in that year, did that happen? Yeah. Um, you know, I just kept, uh, kept practicing, kept getting better. I always knew I wanted to play a sport in college and quickly found out baseball wasn't going to be that sport. Um, but you know, I've got, I've got, I've been very lucky. I've got fantastic parents that provided me every opportunity that I've ever uh, needed. And, um, uh, where, right where a lot of coaches are, are recruiting, I was having to recruit them. Uh, so, you know, I was sending out, uh, resumes, um, you know, calling coaches directly, just asking, Hey, do you have a spot on the team? And um, I actually ended up at uh, LaSalle University, which is also in Philadelphia for my freshman and sophomore year. And, you know, there are about 300 or so uh, Division I golf schools. LaSalle was, you know, 290. You know, the, the, the golf team was, was, was not very good at, the, at that time. And, and I just wanted a place to play. I just wanted an opportunity to play. And I got it at LaSalle. And again, my, my game just kind of got a little bit better every year. I started off averaging, you know, 78, my freshman year, I think I got it down to 75 after my sophomore year. Um, and then wanted to play higher level collegiate uh, golf. And so decided to transfer to St. Joseph's, which was a little bit more in the, in, in the middle, um, rankings and, you know, had access to, to, to stronger fields and just kept getting better and, you know, dropped my scoring average to 74 and then dropped it to 73 in my senior year. Uh, but you know, I'm, I'm a big advocate if, if, if I ever get asked this question and I've been asked this question a few times by some, some friends and some family friends, you know, what advice would you give to uh, junior golfers that are interested to play in college? I always say, go find a place where you can play immediately. Um, don't, don't look to, you know, the big name schools. Uh, you know, if, if you're that good, they'll find you, they'll offer you a scholarship and you'll have a spot, but you you get better by playing tournaments. You get better by challenging your skills on a golf course and not beating balls for six, seven hours a day. And, uh, that's what really allowed me to get better is by competing over and over and over again, understanding how to get the ball in the hole. Uh, and not, uh, not having to worry about, you know, my swing angles and all that stuff. Um, I just love to compete and it was a great situation for me at LaSalle. It was a great situation at St. Joseph's. Um, and then, you know, I loved every, every minute of it. That's an interesting, uh, 
way to look at it. I mean, and, and, and I, I probably share a lot of the same feelings around, you know, um, you never know how good you are until you're under the gun. And, and the only way to get under the gun is to make sure that you're in those moments, you're in the competition, you're in the fields. Um, so you should go to a place to play. And, and I, you know, I've, uh, teamed up with you as your partner. I've been your competitor in, in plenty of matches and you have the heart of a competitor. You know, you are one of the nicest guys on the golf course or off the golf course. You're just always, uh, curious in others and genuine to folks, but you want to win. And, and, and I do too. I mean, I, I've always talked about this on the podcast that like competition isn't something we need to apologize for or hide from. It's, it's part of our DNA as mammals, you know, to compete and, uh, and especially against each other. And I, I think done in the right spirit, it's, it's a great thing, but um, you're, you're, I know that like competing is a byproduct of, of your motivation. What, what were your motivations? I mean, for you to be a kid who can't break 85 or, you know, shot that, round of snap hooks at a hundred in Florida. And then, and then a year later, you're 10 strokes less playing on a D one team. And then a year after that, you're playing at a, you know, a much better team and you're, you're consistently shooting under 75. And by the, by the time you, you left, I think you made all conference or, or right around there. So what, what, what were the real motivations for young Phil at that time? Man, that's a great question. Um, and I wish I would have thought more about this and come more prepared with that answer. But, um, you know, yeah, you know, um, I've always been somebody that kind of paves my own path. Um, I, 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 I really, you know, I, I really want to try to find the best parts of life and, and just enjoy that. And sometimes that takes me down a road that, you know, is a little bit against the grain and, you know, golf allows for you to, to really get deep and deeply involved in it. And, you know, uh, even though, you know, I, I advocate for, you know, playing rounds of golf and competing more than just hitting balls on the range, you know, there's, there's nothing I would trade, right. From putting in your, uh, your AirPods, listen to some music and hitting five footers, right. For an hour. And so there's something, um, uh, magical about getting lost in golf. And, you know, I think that probably is, is what just captured me that, um, you can work your entire life and you can, put a ton of, of, uh, sweat and, and energy and time into perfecting this game. And you're still going to play poorly. Uh, and so it's, it's kind of counter to everything that at least my parents taught me. And I'm sure a lot of people's parents taught them that, um, you work hard, you study, you get good grades, right? You, the more time you put in, the, the, the more success you'll have. It's not always the case in golf. And there's this, um, there's this, this connection for me that I always feel like, okay, I, I can play the perfect round, right? I can go out there and I can, you know, hit 18 greens and I can shoot 62. And if that day comes, I might just quit, but I'm pretty sure it's not ever going to come, but the pursuit is still there. The, that pursuit of perfection 
uh, is what keeps me coming back. And it's, again, maybe a strange thing to say. I always, in the back of my mind, know that that perfection is never going to come, but I still want to try to achieve it. Um, so maybe that's, that's the biggest part of it. Uh, but it's, you know, golf has just grabbed me. Um, and it's a much bigger part of my life, even before I was playing professionally now. Um, and the love is back certainly. So, uh, that's, that's beautiful. First off, I mean, that, that, that's the motivating fill that I was telling everybody about at the start of this thing. Um, it's, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to add to it just a little bit. There's, there's this centered feeling you can get from it as well. Right. That when you are working on your golf game, I've only recently, and when I say recently, probably the last 10 years of the 30, you know, 30, I've been playing golf have started to notice that my pursuit of my, and my game improvement, or even if I'm just, you know, trying to hit a new type of wedge shot, you know, and I put it into play on the golf course. And my, not my results, but really just the, the process and, um, uh, all this, this self-improvement I, I, you know, put on myself for golf. I spent a lot of time thinking about, we all do, we all spent a ton of time thinking about it. And, and, you know, after college, after my playing career was done, I, I felt like, man, how much time did I waste? How much time did I waste? I, I failed. You know, I was a mediocre college golfer. I was a mediocre pro. I, I didn't, I wasn't a pro, um, you know, that, that's how I kind of viewed it. And I spent all this time, it didn't do me any good. And, and now in the, in the last 10 years, I've started to realize that that time spent improving what had little to do with golf. It actually started to be my barometer. Golf was my barometer for improving myself and the lessons I was learning on the golf course and the things that I was, um, you know, the, the discipline or the patience or the, uh, the, the mental self-talk or the rem remembering to breathe when I got anxious, or what did I do after I was anxious? You know, how did I react when I got home from the golf course? All that stuff was really just making, hopefully making me a better person. And, and uh, now, now I have like that awareness of, man, golf improvement is self-improvement. It, it can be this metaphor for the rest of our lives. Agreed. I, I can't say it much better than, 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 than what you just said. I think, you know, one of the things too, that, that, uh, kind of helped me, um, transition from professional golf and then into the, the business world is, um, patience, right? You, you, you need to have patience, right? Even though we, we live in this world where there's so much technology at our fingertips that creates change so quickly, the process takes a long time to get there. Um, and you know, you, you gotta have patience, um, you know, obviously on the golf course and you gotta have a lot of patience in, uh, the business world as well to, to, uh, succeed. Let's talk about the professional golf. You mentioned a few times, I'm sure in your intro, I gave you the, you know, my favorite thing to tell people when I introduce you, Illinois open champ, Phil Aruka. Uh, <laughs> what is it like? being on those mini tours, um, for those, for those listeners, you know, you did give it a shot. You were good enough to, to give it a shot. Um, I, I kind of did. And, and I played, you know, a couple of weeks of the golden bear tour. And I said, I got some buddies hanging out over in Myrtle beach. I think I'm going to go drink beers and chase girls. And that sounds more fun, but, uh, but you gave it like a legitimate go. So give us a sense of what that's like, what that life is like. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of stress. Um, and, uh, 
uh, I mean, it, yeah, it was, it was everything and anything you can kind of think about. Um, so my, you know, I, I spent four years playing professionally, um, you know, from 2008 until two, until the end of 2012, uh, you know, from like, a logistical standpoint, I'd spend half of my year up here in the Chicagoland area playing tournaments around the Midwest. Uh, and then I'd spend half the year down in uh, Florida, uh, spent one, one, one winter in Orlando, uh, three winters down in uh, West Palm Beach. And um, in the in the winter, you know, uh, most pros get connected with the uh, with a couple of tours down there. Uh, there's the West Florida Golf Tour, which I think was merged into like the Moonlight Tour um, or, or vice versa, excuse me. Uh, there's the, um, there's the Hooters tour, which has now gone over to what's called the NGA tour. Uh, and so those are just playing opportunities, uh, right. To, to compete, to earn a living. Uh, but what a lot of people don't realize is, um, you know, and I apologize to the, to the tours out there. It's kind of like, uh, gambling, uh, you're, you're gambling on yourself. You're gambling on your ability. And, you know, when, when we would play for, uh, you know, a purse that's say $150,000, well, there's 150 people in it. The, the, um, the entry fee is a thousand bucks. And so a large part of the purse comes from entry fees. And so it really is gambling. Uh, and you know, if, um, if you're paying a thousand dollars to enter and then, you know, you're spending a few nights in a hotel, you're playing practice rounds, right? You got to eat, you got to pay for gas, right? Your, your minimum spend in a, in a week could be 1500 bucks. Um, and that's on the, on the small side. And so if you don't finish say 35th, 40th, you're losing money for the week. So it's, uh, it's, it's really, um, um, uh, difficult from a, uh, mental standpoint, I think more so than a physical standpoint, right? We all can play golf. We all can shoot in the sixties. We all can make a lot of birdies, but who has that ability week to week to bring their game and to kind of block out some of the financial concerns that, that people might have. Uh, so, you know, for me, uh, again, I would spend a lot of the, uh, winter in Florida and then slowly make my way back up to Chicago playing tournaments in Georgia, South Carolina, Alabama, Mississippi, uh, again, on the, on the Hooters tour. Uh, and then there were a couple of tours, uh, that I would compete on. Uh, one was called the, um, uh, the national professional golf tour that got folded into the gateway tour, which is out in Arizona, uh, and it's just, you just find opportunities to play. And the hope is, you know, you either break even or you earn a little bit of cash to kind of keep the dream going. And the dream culminates, uh, with PGA tour Q school, right? That's, that's what everybody was striving for. That's what everybody was hope that their game would peak for. Um, and I entered Q school, I think three times, never got past first stage, got past the pre-qualifier, but never got past first stage. And, um, you know, it was an absolute grind, but you know, the, uh, the pressure of, um, you know, again, playing Q school, it's a financial commitment. It's, it's 5,000 bucks. And, um, uh, I don't care who you are, you know, when you're, when you're missing a lot of cuts, not playing well, $5,000 is, is a lot of money. And, um, uh, it was certainly tough. Uh, I had a little bit of success, right. With, uh, with, with winning the 2011 Illinois open. And, uh, you know, that 
propelled me a little bit further to say, Hey, let's give this another shot. But, um, you know, there's a, uh, there's a, there's a great story that I tell all the time where I got really lucky to get grouped with Keegan Bradley in a Hooters tour event. And, um, we're on a, you know, 225, 230 yard par three. And I hit a fantastic golf shot right in the middle of the green with a, with a, uh, a hybrid. And, uh, I'm not a very long hitter. And so for me, I could not get to the back right pin that's tucked over a bunker. Well, Keegan comes up there with a four or five iron and just hits an absolute moon ball and lands it five feet from the pin rolls out to, you know, a few feet. And I just turned in, in awe of that golf shot. And so I quickly figured out that, you know, if, if Keegan plays his absolute best and I play my absolute best, he is still going to smoke me. Uh, and so it became pretty clear uh, after I played with some, some better players that they just have a different gear. They, when they play well, they can shoot 63 or 62 or 60. When I play well, I could shoot 67 or 66, but it's just not enough. You know, they're the, um, the uh, uh, m- m- margin of error is greater, uh, you know, for, for them. And for me, it just became a little bit too much. And so decided to, uh, at the end of 2012, um, give up professional golf and get into the business world. We were uh, playing together in a practice round for a, uh, the mid-amp circuit, the cocktail circuit, you know, here in Chicago, the CDGA. And you have not, you know, been a participant in those for a while. Obviously you had your pro status, you worked in the industry, which we're going to talk about plenty here in a bit. Um, but, uh, I, I didn't ask you this. How did it, how does it feel to kind of be back out there in, in the AM world and not, and not the pro world? You know, it's great because the, the pressure of making a cut, making money, you know, keeping the quote unquote dream alive is completely gone. And so now, you know, I get to do what I enjoy and that's play competitively uh, and test my skills against the field. Um, that's always what's, you know, kind of drawn me to, to competitive golf is, you know, where does my game stack up? And I know it still stacks up pretty darn well against local competition and, um, national competition with, you know, having qualified for, for a few USGA events and making match play. Um, but you know, that, that pressure of, um, the, financial instability is, you know, completely gone. And so it allows me to focus more on what's important to me. And that's competition, uh, amongst myself and against the field. I love asking anyone that had was right there, you know, a scratch golfer who had the opportunities, uh, in the pursuit to, to turn pro. I love hearing their stories about, you know, when did they know? And so many of them, uh, refer to playing with somebody. So I, I enjoyed your Keegan, your Keegan story. Mine was Jason Kokrak in, in college playing with him. Um, I shot 71 around Kings Island in Cincinnati played great. Just hit, I think I hit 16 or 17 greens and, you know, a couple three pots and, uh, uh, enough birdies to shoot under par. And I was playing with them. He had a purple headed putter. I'll never forget that. It was a, it was a purple headed putter. And, uh, and I lost by 10, he shot 61 and it was windy and, you know, I wasn't short at that time. I started to get a little bit more length, but 
he's out driving me by 50 yards. And that's not what upset me. It wasn't the 50 or 60 yards he was ahead of me. It was how much better of a putter he was <laughs> at his size and his hands that he had with it. And um, I grew up playing some golf, uh, junior golf with him. So I wasn't surprised, but it was that moment of like, man, this is a different gear. And do I have what it takes to get to that gear? And it was a tough decision for me at the time. I mean, I had already invested all this time into it and I wasn't even a pro yet. You had already taken the financial risk. You had already gone out on the road. How hard was that decision to, uh, to hang it up or was it, or is it not at all? Um, you know, it, it, it really wasn't, a, a an unbelievably difficult decision. Um, I think there's always, you know, there's always the look back of what if, what if I did this better? What if I did that? But I mean, I, man, I, I, I tried everything, right. I mean, I, I busted my ass for, for four years. Um, I was in the best physical shape of my life. Um, you know, I was wearing a 34 inch uh, pant at that point. Right. And I was, I mean, I was, I was trim. I was, I was strong. Um, and, uh, I did, I did absolutely everything I could. And so I was pretty comfortable with knowing there's not one thing I would have done differently. There's certainly things that I wish I had approached in a different manner, uh, maybe worked with a different coach at any specific one time, but, um, no, I was, I was very secure in my decision that, uh, that I, I did everything I could and it just wasn't good enough. And, you know, it's to me at that point, it was, I figured out it was okay to admit that to myself that you've done everything you can. And at the end of the day, that's anything that, that we all as human beings can ask if we do everything we can, and if the result is not good enough, you know what, that's okay. We've, we've done the best that we can. And if you focus on that, you're going to be successful in other pursuits. So, you know, it was, it was certainly tough. Um, it was tougher to, to try to get into, um, uh, <laughs> interviews with, uh, uh, with, with companies and, you know, asking me you know, like, Oh, you know, are you going to be able to, um, uh, to, to, to transition from playing golf every day into an office setting? And I kind of was taken back by that question. I understand why I was asked that question, but, um, I didn't really like that question at that time. Um, but, uh, yeah, man, I, I was super content with the decision. Uh, and, um, you know, there wasn't anything I would have done differently. That's, that's, that's great. I, I assume that was the case just because of the way I've seen you operate with other things, but the business side of golf, you know, you went straight into it from a playing career. So you, you've kind of seen this game from all facets, uh, which is one of the key things we looked at um, to have you as our head honcho for Chicago's chapter <laughs> and, uh, and join in, you know, our, our team and managing the golf society. Um, we met when you were working for Kemper sports and we actually met in a, in a business setting, which is great to think of. Cause I, I haven't actually had that great a track record with like making really close friends from business acquaintances or people that I did sales deals with. I always felt like it was um, disingenuous. A lot of the time, you know, we really just need the signature and are we going to be, but but, but you and I hit it off. We didn't even talk about all this stuff really that, that early uh, competitive playing careers, but um, we hit it off and, and I couldn't really sum it up, but you, you had this, um, I'm going to try, you had this business 
mind of about you that that I could just tell you'd like to look at things from every possible angle. You know, you, you I, there was a lot of times I would meet with the general manager and he would just view things a certain way. Uh, then I'd go over to the pro shop and I talked to the head pro and he'd view things this way. And then you talk to the membership director or the marketing person and, and they had their objectives. Um, from our first conversation, I just remember you, I felt like you were a guy that wore all those hats or you had the capacity to, to see through those lens. Um, where do you think that comes from? Why, why did you want to work in golf? What drew you to, after having a great playing career, why was it the next step for you? Yeah, you know, one of the questions I always got was after getting out of professional golf, do you want to go into being like a head golf professional or, you know, a, a club pro setting? And, you know, it was something that never really appealed to me. I did look at it um, a little bit, but what a lot of people don't understand is that a, a head golf professional, um, you know, they are a uh, um, kind of more of a, of a GM, right? They're, they're managing the golf operations. And so what does that mean? That means pulling up, you know, golf carts, uh, at 6am. That means, uh, you know, making sure payroll is, uh, within budget, um, making sure that they're, uh, you know, they've got all their, uh, merchandise ordered, um, accordingly and, and, and on time. So, um, you know, the, the ability to play as a PGA professional is a lot less than I think people, um, understand. Um, so, you know, for me, that, that kind of wasn't where I wanted to go. I've always still wanted to play competitively and, and, um, you know, wanted a little bit more flexibility from a, uh, lifestyle, certainly. Um, you know, I, I was always curious about the business side of things on, um, on a, uh, a golf course. And so, uh, after a, a year, uh, working as a insurance broker, uh, there's a great opportunity with Kemper sports, where uh, I was trying to, you know, direct sales to um, a group of the Chicago properties. So trying to sell corporate uh, me memberships, uh, you know, uh, charitable corporate golf outings. And then where, where we met uh, up at Hawthorne Woods Country Club, uh, leading sales and, and, and marketing up there for about uh, four years before going back to Kemper's corporate office, um, you know, I think the, I think what you were kind of getting at is, uh, I'm a golfer first, right. And, um, I think a lot of people that are working in the golf industry, it's their job. And so they get focused on what their job is rather than what does the golfer customer experience look like? You know, how can we make sure that the, the member or the customer experience is great? Because as a golfer, that's what I want, right? You want to, show up, you want, you know, maybe the, the bag staff to, to take your clubs out and be very professional about it. You want to walk into the pro shop and, you know, have a nice greeting with, with the head golf professional and, you know, go out and play and have a great uh, experience on the golf course. And, you know, that's the superintendent's job, right. To make sure that the greens are mowed really well. And it's in the golf course is maintained very well. And then you get done and you go in and maybe you have lunch and the food service has to be up to par or better. And so I've, ex I've experienced all of those touch points with a golf course. Um, and so I just, I feel like understanding, um, that as a golfer first was very beneficial for the, uh, uh, business career I had with, with Kemper. Um, 
But then I also had to learn things from the operational standpoint. You know, how do you actually execute all of these things? Uh, and you know, Kemper is really, really good at at uh, executing uh, outstanding customer experiences. A lot of us, uh, this this podcast, I certainly do it plenty myself. Is that we all have an opinion of where the golf industry needs to go, right? There needs to be six hole courses. There needs to be you know, quick service type, uh, food and drink. There needs to be, um, carts need to be blown up. There need to be more carts and there need to be USBs and carts. Everyone has these opinions, but why do you think, um, so much the industry slow to move? We know that, right? It's very clear. I mean, I I've worked in, in travel and healthcare and, and others. And I just know for a fact, golf, is going to take a couple more years than probably a normal trend would or a normal you know industry would would update things what what do you think of those people that are in those roles why doesn't it happen quicker why why are we always having these conversations of uh, this is where it needs to go and and we don't see as much in golf of it just going or or maybe going's not the right word maybe the word is testing why are more people in these jo- in these positions not testing ideas out yeah, you know, I've thought about that a lot. Um, I think it, I think it kind of boils down to the fact that, um, you know, if you're a, a daily fee golf course, um, 60% of your rounds, and I, I could get this number completely wrong, but it is a very high number, a large percentage, 50, 60% of your rounds are coming from people that are 55 and older. Uh, and so their expectations of what a round of golf is having grown up maybe in the seventies and eighties, um, is very different from what, uh, you know, somebody that's grown up in the nineties or the early two thousands with technology. And so I think it's really difficult to change a business model, uh, when so much of your revenue is dependent upon satisfying, um, a, uh, older demographic. Uh, and so, you know, w- when I was at Hawthorne Woods Country Club, you know, a lot of the members that, you know, play the majority of the rounds, you know, they've been members there for 10, 12, 13 years. It's a newer club, but if it were an older club, you're talking about members that have been there for 20, 25, 30 years. And so the, the pace of change can be difficult because you have to satisfy that group of members that are, are, uh, um, have been there for a very long time, but also attracting the younger demographic because those people are going to be your members for the next 25, 30 years. Um, and so those things, you know, are kind of counter to each other. How do you satisfy both groups? Um, and so it's difficult, uh, you know, bringing technology in is a great way to kind of attract a younger demographic, right? Some of the things that you and I take for granted, paying your bill online. Um, you know, that was a huge step forward when I was at Hawthorne Woods Country Club. You know, we, we would still send out bills through, uh, through mail and you would have to send a check back. I can't tell you the last time I wrote a check, um, and so being able to pay your bill online, being able to book a tea time online, right? Those are things that we expect as, you know, 30-somethings and the 20-somethings, they don't even know what a check is, right? And so it, it just takes a little bit of time. Um, but I love where the golf world is going. Change is always slow, um, but 
it's happening. And, um, you know, one of the things that I, uh, I was really um, heartened to see was Pine Valley just announced that they're going to open up to female membership. Um, I've been lucky enough to have played Pine Valley uh, when I was um, a senior in, in college. It's an outstanding place. But this uh, this idea that you know courses uh, should be for uh, you know men only you know is a very outdated model, and things will change. And evidence is is Pine Valley. There will still be some clubs that are going to hold out, but you know I, I like to think when we're in our fifties, um, there probably won't be any of them left. You think? Fifties, right. I hope so. I I do too. Um, yeah, I. I there is this, this societal progress, right. That, that is moving and golf seems to be, you know, there was a little bit of the online banter around this Pine Valley thing that people were almost congratulating, you know, them. And, uh, that, that almost speaks to the, the state of the game. It's like, yes, they, they probably deserve some credit for doing something right. The, the president of the club finally stood up and said, Hey, we are, going to have a mixed gender membership and we're going to vote on it. And I sound like it was unanimous, but you know, it says a lot about golf that we're even like commending something that seems to be so in every other walk of life. So ridiculous, right? We have tight Titans of industry that, that are female and women in every aspect of our life that are making the world a better place. Just, just look around and, and uh, for whatever reason, sometimes in golf, we don't, we, we have not acknowledged it. Yeah. And, you know, I've, uh, you know, I was, I was uh, a history major in college and, um, you know, I focused a lot on um, U.S. history, uh, mainly the Civil War and the Civil Rights era. And um, change is slow, right? You know, these were two times that uh, were, were very, um, uh, very difficult in our nation's history. And, you know, there were, uh, you know, once we got out of the Civil War, you know, there was uh, Reconstruction, but um, Reconstruction wasn't really all that great for, uh, you know, the, the uh, uh, freed slaves. So um, change is slow, man. I mean, we, we all want change to happen at a faster clip. Uh, but I think, you know, and they, we, we obviously have talked about it. The golf industry is certainly slow to change, but, you know, I also look at positive signs like uh, a place like Sweden's Cove, right? We just went down there for the spring meeting and, um, you know, it's a, it's a golf passionate golfers paradise. That's, that, that's how I kind of refer to it. And um, it's nine holes. It's, it's simple, but it's just pure golf. Right. And to, to, Think about um, Rob that. Be pissed, right? He listens to this pod, and you just said, of course, it's simple. <laughs> well, no, no, it's simple from the standpoint of it's 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 a it's a it's it's one it's one fairway cut, right? The greens are not simple. The greens are fantastic. Uh, they're 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 just unbelievably challenging, but it's just pure golf. And so this, this idea that you have to have a big clubhouse and you have to have a big food service operation, and you have to have this big, huge driving range to attract people to play your course is not the case. And, um, you know, golf courses, the golf industry is going to struggle with that, but it also brings new opportunities, uh, like Sweden's Cove. Um, and I think they're working on, uh, Overton park, 
as well. And I see, you know, follow them on social media. That place looks outstanding. Um, Canal Shores here in, um, in, uh, in Evanston, a great partner with New Club, you know, th that place has been brought back over the last 10 years. That's a fantastic story. And it just proves that, you know, golf is going to change, change for the better. And it doesn't have to be um, 18 holes, right? You can play the purple line loop at Canal Shores. You can play a five hole loop, right? And it just has to, has to be fun. And uh, that's what's succeeding. And I think that's what's going to continue to succeed as our age group, as the 20 somethings become the, the bigger, um, I guess, buying power out there. Uh, our, de our demand is going to go to places like Canal and Sweden's Cove. And it's going to go away from the more traditional places because, you know, we don't have six hours to play around the golf anymore, right? We may have two and a half. Let's talk about the most traditional places, right? So the, the country clubs, I mean, that's, that's a big part of our universe that a new club is, you know, we aspire to, to play and enjoy the, these beautiful grounds for golf that have, you know, especially the ones that, you know, are, are so well revered, you know, your Cypress points, your pine valleys, you know, those are the top of, of everyone's list. What I think there's, we, we talk about change what the specific changes that will occur behind those member only gates, right? Cause you see what happens at Sweden's you, you see what happens at winter park, but where is that happening at the most venerable sites? You know, I see in my conversations, there's a lot of fear of um, even though I know Pine Valley members that have been to Sweden's and they had a great time. <laughs> they had an awesome time. Why? Because it's still golf. And it's, it's a brand of golf that, that is, is recognizable the world over, right? But what I think scares them is there's also some folks wearing T-shirts playing golf. There's people, uh, maybe they walked nine and then they took a cart around for 45 more holes and they were playing music. Uh, and there was a dog running down the center of the first fairway. And all that starts to um, um, add to the fear, I think, that that the, the golf will also suffer, that, that the thing that they love most about the golf, which frankly does tie so much into their traditions and their history and um, what they feel is, is their identity of a, of a club and themselves, uh, that that is at jeopardy if, if they kind of give way to this, this, new, this new way world of golf. Um, do, do you, I mean, what, what, what changes do you think that they need to make? And what, what are some things, ask it a different way, what are some things that they should be the custodians of? They should protect that. They should, you know, how do you feel about, about those, um, those issues? Should folks be required to tuck in their shirt at, at certain places? And that's okay. You know, what, what, what is your gut on that? Yeah, it's a great question. That's also a uh, uh, loaded question. I think we could uh, have probably have a podcast in and of itself for that one, but um, you know, I think um, what, what initially comes to mind is, um, you know, a place that, that you're uh, a member at, Beverly, right? You know, they, they made the decision to focus on golf, focus on the golf course. They put a lot of money into rebuilding the greens. And I think what, what again, gets, gets kind of um, pulled away is, um, you know, focus on, focus on golf, focus on the golf course, right? Make the golf course a fantastic product, 
Um, and if you do that, if you hearken back to the traditions of why the club was formed, um, and, but, you know, also make it, um, accessible to, you know, some public, you know, I love what, uh, a lot of the high-end clubs in the UK do, uh, you know, they have their local, uh, members and, you know, you can, you can join the club if you live locally, but they also allow, uh, outside play. And I think that's a fantastic model that we need to adapt more here in the United States. You know, you don't have to uh, open up five tea times every week, but, you know, the clubs over in the UK, uh, whether it's uh, Royal County Down, uh, Royal Port Rush, you know, they have tea times reserved for outside play. Uh, You're going to pay uh, a little bit higher, certainly than you would, uh, as a member, but rightly so. And I think, you know, people just want to, to experience, um, a great golf course and, you know, clubs here in Chicago, um, you know, they should be proud of the club that they've put together. But I think if you focus on the golf, focus on what binds everybody together, which is the golf and the golf course, right? I, I, I can't tell you, anyone that joins a country club because of a pool or because that, because the, the food is spectacular. They're joining because of the golf course first, and then the social atmosphere that comes from the club. And I think if you focus on the golf, focus on uh, what brings people together, we're going to be okay as a, as a, as a, um, as a golfing society, uh, in, in the, in the, uh, long run, because we focused on the, the, the traditions. And again, traditions are great. I think you need to, to honor traditions, but you know what, it's, it's okay to let in new ones. Um, and you know, the, the, the 30 somethings that are joining your club right now. Yeah. They're going to listen to some music on the golf course. But as long as that music isn't, you know, impeding on somebody else's enjoyment also, you know, it, it should be uh, welcomed uh, and times will change. Things will, things will move in uh, in a, in a, in a manner in which, um, you know, the club is comfortable with, but uh, it, it has to happen and it will happen over the long run. I, I something you said is sticking with me. It's what binds us. And I think about, you know, you're a history buff, right? So uh, it's it's no surprise. We talk about these traditions a lot in the good sense, but there are clubs that were were started for for some pretty awful reasons. Um, so a lot of segregation, right? A lot of clubs were started because they had to, right? Jews weren't allowed into the clubs. So there's a Jewish club, there's a Catholic club, there's an all male club. There's there's things that divide us, right? And they were they were started for those reasons. However, within that group. It was the thing that, that binded everybody because they also have differences between them was the golf, right? And there's no golf club that was ever founded that didn't say, hey, we got to build a nice golf course. <laughs> we want to have a good one. A lot of them screwed it up. A lot of them did it wrong, but they, they at least, you know, had that intention. And that, that's what, uh, what you just said sticks with me is let's just focus on what binds us. And so bringing it all the way full circle back to the, the male, uh, all male clubs, it's like, hey, we're not saying let everybody in that is that is the last thing we want because then it crumbles right people if you if you have just beginners showing up at your phenomenal uh golf course and 
there is repercussions. There really is. There's there's a rhythm to the game. There's a a pace of play understanding. There's etiquette understanding. There's there's um maybe there is a skill requirement. I think that's also probably silly and not required. But there are places that I would I would say, man, this isn't very fun uh, <laughs> to to have thirty five handicap out here. This place is just so damn hard. But I say all this because I think what everyone's missing is that new club, especially we do not advocate for letting everybody in, you know, like wham, wham, let me in to play this golf course. That's not it. What we're saying is let's just focus on the thing that everybody shares, which is a love appreciation and experience with golf. And if you, if you do that and you set, you start to change the bar, right? Set your bar as that, then it shifts away from male, female. It doesn't freaking matter. Are you at this stage in your golf journey where you qualify for a membership, right? If you're, if you're not, then, then you're not in. But if you, if you are, if you truly respect what, what we respect and care about what we care about and, and you know, show your shared values, well, then saddle up, like, come on in. And, uh, and, and, and that is, again, a higher level to, to look at things. And uh, I, I just think it would solve a lot of problems <laughs> that, that we Yeah, have. no, no, there's a, there's a, uh, I've got a great kind of short, short story kind of in what, what you're talking about. I, when I was playing professionally, uh, you know, I would, I would caddy a little bit on the side to earn a little bit of extra cash uh, to help support my, uh, my dream of being on the PGA tour. Um, but so I would, uh, I spent a couple of summers caddying at Conway farms golf club and Conway farms, uh, you know, it's not a, uh, um, an old club, right. It's a fairly new club, uh, in, in the golf world and they're a golf club. They're four golfers. And, uh, one of my favorite days as a caddy was, uh, Tuesdays, right. And Tuesdays traditionally has been a ladies day. And, um, you know, part of the reason that it was one of my favorite days was the fact that, uh, you know, we played in under four hours uh, and I was double bagging for two uh, female members. Uh, and they, you know, this whole idea that, oh, you know, it takes, take, it takes women longer to play golf couldn't be further from the truth, right? We played so quickly that I rarely put the bag down and um, they, you know, they, they, they knew, Hey, you know, if, if I'm, if I've hit six shots and I haven't gotten to the green, all right, I'll just pick up, I'll drop a ball in the green. I'll make a putt. I'll go to the next tee. Right. And so this, this whole idea that, you know, it's somebody's gender or it's, it's, it's their, it's their race that, that should, should preclude them from joining a club is just ridiculous focus on are they genuinely excited to be a member at a great golf course because there are plenty of people whether it's male female black or or white or asian hispanic if they genuinely love golf they will be phenomenal members at your club they're going to play a lot of golf they're going to bring their families to play golf there they're going to use the pool they're going to come to your social events and as a club those are the members we want those are the members that are going to spend a lot of money and sustain the club over a long period. And so to, to, to keep people out because of, of things that they can't control, um, it just, it's not, it's not a very good long-term bet. Uh, and, 
um, I just think that that example that that I just gave at Conway Farms is fantastic because Conway is a golf course, and you know if you don't love golf, I don't know why you're a member there. Yeah, it's not it's not going to be for you, and uh, and that's okay, right? That's that's perfectly fine. It's just uh, making that clear to everybody is is the way to go. Um, there's uh, plenty more we could talk about. I mean, I, I I have a question for you that I've never asked you. But uh, it's it's a little bit self promotion for the golf society. But you know, now that you are officially with New Club, uh, um, I I always wondered. I was always a little nervous going to you. Uh, I, I respected you as a person in the industry. I knew that you had other job offers um, to keep working in the industry that could pay you far better probably than what uh, we could at New Club, but. Uh, you said yes to joining us. I'm I'm curious what it is about about us and New Club that um, you know I've seen how passionately you've dove in into you've dove into this and our, and our members I think have too right. You are chatting with everybody and asking feedback and and doing things that frankly I I think I did early on and maybe have lost a little bit of and and it just it reinvigorates me um, to see your energy for it and I just wanted to know. On the outside looking in, what what was it about New Club that that got you going? Uh, um, well, uh, you know, there's this global pandemic that hit that unfortunately, uh, you know, had me unemployed. So it was kind of perfect timing. timing. <laughs> Time, it's you know, you know, it's so much in life, right? Is timing. But no, seriously, um, you know, over over the last few years, one of the things that um, you know I tried to find out or figure out for myself is what is important to me from a um, career standpoint. And what's important to me is uh, work-life balance. And, you know, I think we, we, we talk a lot about work-life balance in or We, we talked a lot about it when I was in the corporate uh, world, and I'm sure you've talked a lot about it too, but, you know, you and Mark uh, and Kevin, uh, you guys really, live that, you know, you're, you put that as one of the highest priorities to say, you know, yes, it's important that, you know, we work hard and play hard, but, you know, we have families and our families are of the utmost importance. And, you know, my wife and my, my daughter, right. You know, I want to be there for them. Um, and so that's, that was one of the things that really attracted me that, you know, the, the culture that you guys are trying to bring, it's not something that you talk about once a year, twice a year, right. At, you know, corporate board meetings, you guys put it front and center and it is at the core of everything that you guys do. So that, that was kind of the first thing that really, uh, I, I really, uh, appreciate it. The second thing is, um, I've always been interested in, you know, being involved in kind of like a new business or, you know, your we're, new club is not a startup in any sense. Uh, but I've always had this, this, this goal maybe to, you know, help, uh, you know, start a business from the, the ground up. And I explored a lot of different opportunities in insurance, um, uh, you know, other, other areas, um, food service, uh, you know, um, retail, um, franchises, and I just never could kind of make the jump. And there's, there's a long, long list of, of reasons that I decided not to do that. But 
um, I've always been interested in being part of a business and help it grow and see the growth and be part of the decision-making process that you don't get to be part of when you're part of a large corporation. Um, and then, you know, finally, you know, to kind of wrap everything up with what we talked about today, right? I want to be part of the, the change in the golf world. And, you know, new club is a new way of approaching golf. And, you know, we do things that are different and different is good. Um, and I like being part of that, you know, there's, there's no better way to, to kind of say it. The fact that, you know, we, we have 45, 50 people down at Sweden's Cove, you know, playing, you know, 55 holes a day, um, you know, find me a, uh, a group that, that did that, you know, five years ago, right. You can't. And so, um, I like being part of something new. I like being part of something that I see as an opportunity to grow, uh, you know, around the country, and, um, you know, you and Mark are just are great people first. And, uh, you know, it's easy to work with people that are good people and, and are focused on um, culture and building a sustainable business over the long term. That's really the answer I was looking for that last little piece about, about not, not so much Mark. I was mostly looking for about me, but uh, thank you. It's nice. I, I, I've never asked you that. So it's... Um, why not do it on the podcast? Thanks for, for sharing. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. And, you know, if, if uh, you know, I don't advocate for this, but, you know, when we're looking to expand into other markets, you know, uh, you know, find, finding somebody uh, in a global pandemic usually is a pretty good way to, <laughs> to, to attack an un- unemployment just, just, just issue. Wait, wait for the next global pandemic and we'll, yeah, it might wait. Sure. Yeah. We might have to wait about a hundred years, but I hope um, to God. <laughs> um, Hey, what are you most excited about for Chicago uh, this year in Chicago? What, what, what new club specifically, what are you excited about? Yeah. Um, you know, from a personal standpoint, I'm just excited to experience everything for an entire year. Uh, we've got a phenomenal schedule put together. Uh, the trips that we put together are, you know, spectacular going to Sweden's Cove, Sand Valley, Bandon Dunes, um, the Pinehurst area, uh, we're going to head up to Aaron Hills, you know, um, uh, and you know, I haven't even talked about what we're doing down in Atlanta. So just the ability, the opportunities to go to these just phenomenal places that provide such a amazing experience, um, you know, is, uh, is, is really just going to be fantastic. Um, you know, the other thing too, is I just love being around people that are passionate about the game of golf. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of like anytime you meet somebody, a new club, it's like, you've known them for five years and you can immediately talk to them about, you know, professional golf or architecture or travel. Uh, you know, we've, we've got a book club, right? There's, there's just so much, um, wonderful things that we're doing. And I just, I, you know, I, I think somebody said this in a, in a, a podcast in the past, maybe that, you know, we're, we're social beings, right? We, we, we so much so want to be with other people and COVID has, has made that very difficult. And, 
you know, we've we're, we've both now had our vaccines, and more and more people are are having their uh, vaccines. And so I'm just excited to get back into seeing people again, right? And 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 enjoying the company of of others that I genuinely enjoy being with. Yeah, you're here. So I got one last thing for you, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, I've it's called the Nineteenth Soul. Are you a listener of the pod? I got now you're employed. I've listened to, to listen. a few of these conversations before. You have to listen. So, uh, thirty-five questions was Marcel Proust. He was the French novelist who was looking to find the truest nature of an individual. We're not doing that. What we're looking to do is find the truest nature of the golfer, the Nineteenth Soul. Eighteen questions to reveal the soul of the golfer. Phil Aroca. Mr. Iberian Peninsula, Portuguese Aroca, are you ready for the 19th soul? I'm ready. Let's Number go. one. Oh, by the way, we, we can both be lengthy. The point of these are uh, short answer. They're not supposed to be, you know, you, you could, a lot of them are philosophical. You could spend uh, two, two months thinking about them. The first thing that comes to your mind, you got, you got to give us an answer. Okay. Are you ready? Let's do it. When were you, Phil, the happiest as a golfer? Oh, I knew you were going to ask me this question and I, I'm going to give you a long winded answer. Uh, no, um, I think, uh, uh, certainly when personally, when I won the, the Illinois open in 2011, uh, but more recently, uh, when, I um, I took my daughter out to the golf course and just, uh, watched her hit some putts. I don't think I hit one ball and it was just unbelievably fun um, and enjoyable in a completely different manner from competition. Number two, what is the scariest golf shot? Scariest golf shot is a 200 plus yard carry over water to a green um, that uh, is very thin. I was going to say long bunker shot, but recently I've had a lot of those and I feel very good about them recently. So what, what, what 200 plus, you, you know, I take, I take my 52, I open it up a little bit, just make a full swing and it goes like a 40, 50 yards. So anything that I got to carry 200 plus yards over water, I've just, I'd rather hit my wedge and lay up. Interesting. Number three, what is your go-to order at the halfway house? Oh man, that's a good one. Um, you know, I'm a big chicken salad person. So if you give me chicken salad on uh, whole wheat toast with a little uh, tomato and lettuce, that's perfect. Number four, what is the trait you most deplore in your golf game? Uh, my iron game, man. I, if I had a better iron game, I, uh, I don't do anything bad in golf. I wish my iron game were just a little bit better. I need to hit more shots inside of 20 feet. And I just, I don't seem to do that. So I'm focusing on that this year. You'd be out there with Keegan and not chatting with me. So I'm glad your iron game's right where it's at. <laughs> uh, what is the quality you most look for in a playing partner? Uh, somebody that can make a lot of birdies. I tend to make a few birdies. Uh, and, uh, you know, Matt, you and I are going to, our team up this year in the, uh, Carmody Invitational, formerly known as the Merit Am. You make a lot of birdies. So I'll, I'll make the pars. I'll make the pars. You make the birdies. I, I've decided my game's not for qualifiers. Just get me to the ship and I will get you those six or seven birdies and we will, 
you know, we'll be there. Number six, what is the trait you most deplore in other golfers? Um, taking the game too seriously. I think the biggest thing that you have to focus on is we're all going to have bad days and right. It's all uh, re- relative to each other, but you know, my, my bad day, right. Is going to be 79, 80, 81, uh, a different score for somebody else, you know, might be 90, 90, 95 or something like that, but you just have to focus on the, uh, love of the game. The reason you're out there is to enjoy the walk enjoy the exercise, enjoy being outdoors. If you focus on that, you're, you're going to be fine. Number seven, what words or phrases do you most overuse on the golf course? Uh, this is connected, connected to my dad. I say, come on, Philip way too much to myself. I'll hit a bad shot and just come on, Philip. So I need to, I need to, uh, stop doing that. That's a very Irish thing to do all the uh, all the in ireland they say it to themselves too they go come on boy come on man. come on boy here oh. we go come on i have never been to ireland so i can't tell you that that's where i got it from you, you already got the overused uh golf herbage number eight what golfing talent would you most want to have i would love to have another 15 yards off the tee or hit my irons better Number nine, what is your most treasured golf possession? Uh, this is a great question. Um, you know, my 2011 <laughs> Illinois Open trophy is really nice. However, I still have one of that big check that they gave me for the tournament. So one of those big, you know, happy Gilmore yeah. size foam checks that, that they give out. Um, I didn't try to cash that at the bank. They actually direct deposited the funds. So that was nice. Uh, but I have that check framed uh, in my house. And um, yeah, it just brings back a lot of great memories. What's the one thing in your golf bag you should throw out? Mm. One thing in my golf bag I should throw out. If it were a club, I'd throw out my two hybrid or my five wood because I just can never seem to hit that. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that that's it. Number 11, what is your favorite occupation at the golf course? You know, I've listened to the podcast, Matt, and I've heard a lot of people answer this with superintendent. And I'm unfortunately going to say the exact same thing. Having worked at golf courses, met superintendents, worked very closely with them, they are the hardest working people out there. And I have such an appreciation for the difficulty of their job. So huge shout out to the superintendents out there. A lot of love for the supers. I, you know how there's like celebrity architects now? I, I think there should be celebrity. Like when are we going to get to celebrity supers? You know, you know that, supers. Like, we know their names. We're like, oh, this guy knows how to grow some turf. Yeah, but you know the difference is supers don't want the uh, the fame. They just want to be left alone. They just want to be able to do their job. Uh, I've ran into a few superintendents that have preferred that nobody ever play their golf course because they just want it to look pristine. Uh, but you know, a lot of times they just want to be left alone to do their job. They don't they don't want to have any press. So, uh, part yeah, I part of their yeah beauty. yeah. Pristine. Uh, number 12, have you ever asked another golfer for their autograph? Oh, of course. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Did you get um, who was it? Oh man. I don't know, man. Who, who, I mean, I've, I've gone to the PGA championship. I've gone to 
the masters, uh, luckily, uh, just for a practice round. Um, God, I can't remember. I've got some some stuff signed. I can't remember who I asked an autograph for. I should have asked. Keegan? I should have done this. I didn't ask Keegan because hey, I was playing with him. Crushing my dreams. Can you sign yeah. my advisor? You know, I should have. Th- this would have been a good idea. I got to play with Dustin Johnson in the 2007 Western Amateur. Uh, and that was before DJ, right, turned pro and was the number one player in the world. So... I should have asked him for his uh, autograph at that point. That would have been some some foresight. That's all right. Uh, number 13, what historical golf figure do you most relate to? Mm, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> you know, a couple people that I really, really like. Um, uh, Donald Ross, uh, certainly. Um you know, I grew up in Philadelphia, and uh, before we moved out to Chicago, my my family became members at Aronimink Golf Club. And uh, Donald Ross said that that was his um, uh, uh, masterpiece of a of a uh, of a club. And so I've always admired the work that he's done. And um, you know, hopefully we're, we can get the new club out to Aronimink in Philadelphia because that that place is just a special place. Awesome. 14. What is your greatest golf regret? That I didn't make it to the PGA tour. <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, no, I, that's, that, that's certainly not it. Um, you know, I, you know, I, I don't know, man. I think, I think the biggest regret is, and if this is a continual regret is I just don't spend enough time in the gym being flexible and, uh, working out. Um, but at the same time, you know, we all live busy lives and I've got a five-year-old that keeps me active. Uh, and, um, I would love to be more flexible, hit it a little further, but you know, I also ha- don't have a desire to do that stuff right now. Just join me when you, next time we're at the, on the range together, you know, get ready for a new club tea time. Just stop hitting balls and join me on the ground. I'm the only guy that gets down there anymore and just. I throw the towel out. I do all my yoga stretches. You and I, buddy, we're going to do it. Yeah, I doubt that, but okay. (laughs) Number 15, what's your favorite hole in all of golf? Oh, man. Um, I'll probably go back to Aronimink. The first tee shot at at Aronimink is just a beautifully framed par four. your, your, your walk goes down about 60 to 70 feet. And then you slowly go uphill to a green that is the exact same level as the tee box. Um, and for some reason that tee shot just sticks out in my mind all the time. That's a, I even just you describing it. I can see it on TV. I haven't played there, but I, I, you know, watched the BMW championship there. Yeah. It looks like a cool, pretty cool hole. Um, favorite book or golf movie favorite golf book or golf movie um you know the book i just read was uh tom coin's uh a course called ireland and uh you know we had coin on the um uh, our kickoff event beginning of the year and so that was really cool i also found out after reading the book that tom who's no longer there but he was a uh he taught english at st joseph's university where i graduated from i had no idea 
but you probably um, would have enrolled in that English class. Wouldn't yeah, you? yeah, I would definitely ha- would have. Uh, but yeah, we're um, um, my dad and I are planning a trip to Ireland uh, in the next couple of years, and uh, it was a just wonderful book to read, and I, I th- thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, that one's special. Uh, we talked a lot about music already on this podcast. If you had one song to listen to on the golf course for the rest of your life, what would it be? Yeah, I'm terrible at songs, so I can't really name any songs. Uh, but I will say I listen to just about everything, and it just depends on the mood. I'll listen to country. I'll listen to hip-hop. Um, I'll listen to uh, EDM. I mean, I am all over the place. It's just reminded me of a moment at the spring meeting. I'll interject quickly where uh, my father came down for the spring meeting. And I, I was playing the first nine with your guys' team. We did these pods for the, the team format around Swedes Cove. And uh, you had uh, like Eminem on and it was peak, you know, aggressive Eminem. You know, our, our kind of our childhood, I'd imagine those kind of late nineties, early two thousands that he, you know, it's, it's aggressive for the golf course. I'm not going to lie. I I'm, I'm very, uh, into rhythm. I don't care. I'm with you. I'll listen to anything, but I need a good rhythm. Not someone yelling at me so much like Eminem was. And, and, and uh, my dad said something, but it wasn't about your music. My dad was talking about, we, him and I were sharing a room, uh, at the emergency nine there right off of, of Sweetens Cove road. And the music he was talking about, he goes, yeah, what the hell is that music? You thought it was your Eminem. It, what it was, was my sleep music that I listened to. So I can, you know, put my busy brain to, to sleep at night. It was, he goes, yeah, that, that shit was awful. He goes, that was like a seance. I thought there was going to be a sacrifice and you turn around and you go, oh, sorry, Bill, I'll, I'll switch. What would you, what do you want to listen to? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, your, your dad, uh, you know, is just such a nice guy. And, um, you know, I, I, this is the first time I met him. So I, and I, you know, working for a new club, I want to make sure he has a good time out there. So, you know, if I had to change it to Zach Brown band, which I think I did, um, that's just fine with me. It was an upgrade and he's, he's, he's an honest man too. So he, when he, uh, he said, Hey, I was talking about Matt's sleep music, but thanks for changing it. I, I wasn't really into what you had on. Uh, anyway, 18th question. We made it all the way there. If you have a motto, if you had a motto, maybe you do, what would it be? Um, you know, something that always sticks out in my mind is, uh, the Jimmy Valvano, uh, speech where, um, you know, he's, he's dying from cancer. He's, he's at the ESPYs and he gives a speech, right. That just, you know, don't give up, don't ever give up. And, um, you know, I'm a fairly stubborn person and, um, I think that's probably why I love golf, uh, that it just brings out the stubbornness in me, but yeah, I, um, you know, I, I always just think to myself, like, just, just, just don't give up, keep, keep trying, keep, 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 you know, signing up for tournaments, keep playing. And, and, uh, eventually, you know, hopefully I can find that, uh, that perfect round. If that doesn't explain our buddy, Phil Aroka, then. I don't know what it does. That's that's pretty perfect to sum it all up. Phil, thanks. Great hanging out with you. Uh, fun recording one of our many conversations. And uh, everyone that's listening, you know, how should they, you know, Chicago members especially, you got to get to know Phil. Uh, he's just 
a good fella to have as a friend, but also he's going to have your answers <laughs> for a lot of what we got coming up in Chicago. Phil, how do you want people to get a hold of you? Yeah, just uh, send me an email, uh, philip at newclub.golf. Uh, and I will say that's one L, not two L's. I've actually learned that recently as a big, big thing. So philip at newclub.golf, best way to get in touch with me. Um, you can also, uh, you know, send me a message on Slack, uh, certainly get back to you and, you know, you're always welcome to find me on, uh, Facebook or uh, Instagram or, or Twitter. Thanks, Phil. Enjoyed it, man. We'll see you real soon. Thanks, Matt. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. If you are not a subscriber, please do subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you want to follow us on Twitter or Instagram, we're at New Club Golf. This episode was produced by Mark Caldwell with research assistance by Jim Sitar. The bag drop is supported by members of New Club Golf Society and our official partners. The Evan Scholars Invitational is our official partner of this year's Hangout at Canal Shores. The future stars of the PGA Tour return to the Glen Club on May 27th through 30th for the Corn Ferry Tour's Evan Scholars Invitational. General admission to this event is complimentary this year, courtesy ServPro of Glenview. Fans looking for an upgraded experience can purchase tickets to The Hangar, a premium spectator venue with food and drink included. For more information and to secure your tickets, visit esinvitational.com, and I will see you at the Evan Scholars Invitational.